Today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to continue to follow on with that. Just wanted to make mention of the study sheets up here after the service. Uh, mine will be there next week. Sorry about that. And uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse, beginning with verse 26. We're continuing through uh, Hebrews. Before I get into that, to that, though, I was reading a book by John Ortberg this past week, and it was called uh, God is Closer Than You Think. It's really a, a good book, and it begins the book with uh, an illustration about Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel and the fresco painting that's in there. And uh, he begins by really focusing in on the creation of Adam. And, you know, that's a magnificent painting. In fact, one of my life goals is really to see the Sistine Chapel. I have really three life goals. I want to see the Sistine Chapel. I have more than that, maybe. But as far as visiting places, I want to see the Sistine Chapel. I want to see the Roman Colosseum. And I want to see the regions of the seven churches, you know, before I die. I hope I have a chance to do that. But this painting here, in particular, he was focusing in on it. And uh, if you look carefully at it, it's really an image of uh, God and his interpretation of God in his chariot with the angels. And he's reaching out and reaching out to touch Adam. And so that's the picture, Adam sitting there reclining on the, on the globe, on the earth. And that's the picture of God. And so Michelangelo's interpretation is that God is, God is reaching out to Adam. And you see in that picture, he's really reaching out. His body's turned, his arms reaching out, and his fingers fully extended. He's really straining, reaching out, trying to touch Adam. And I know you have to be careful how much you interpret art, but I think uh, this is the brilliance of Michelangelo in this picture. Because uh, if you take a closer look then and look at Adam, well, Adam is kind of looking away from God. He's kind of just disinterested in God. And, and he's kind of reclining black back there on the globe. And he's not really reaching out to God. His arm is up and his finger's kind of just sitting there limp. And you just think all he'd have to do is lift his finger and touch God. Ortberg says his kind of interpretation of it is maybe he assumes that God, having come this far, will close the gap for him. Or maybe Adam assumes that, uh, or maybe he's just indifferent to the possibility of touching God at all. Or maybe he lacks the strength. But all he'd have to do is lift his finger to touch the Creator. It's an interesting picture. It's an interesting thought. And to me, the picture describes so often the relationship that humanity has toward God. God has opened up the way for us to access Him. He's given His only Son to us and said, this is, a, this is the way that you access Me, through belief in, the Son of Jesus, in My Son, Jesus Christ. That's the access, and God has opened that up for us. But we're so caught up with ourselves that we neglect to connect to God. We like it here on earth. We're caught up with the busyness of the world. We're caught up with the priorities of this world. And therefore, we don't just lift our finger and touch God. But you know, one of the overriding themes of Scripture is relationship. Specifically, the relationship between God and humanity. And the idea that God wants to know us. And He wants to be known by us. In fact, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing God. John 17, verse 3, He says, Eternal life is to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing Him. That gives you the picture of eternal life. Knowing God comes through relationship. Specifically, it comes through a genuine, heartfelt desire and belief to pursue God. 
But many times our pursuit of God is really pretty pathetic, isn't it? So often we, we do kind of relate to this picture of Adam sitting there reclining back, arms limp, saying, Okay, God, here I am. Come get me. So often we look like Adam in Michelangelo's picture. But isn't it interesting that God doesn't actually touch Adam in this picture? It's not like God comes down and, and touches Adam and their fingers touch and there's this electric shock and this spark of lightning that comes about. God doesn't actually reach down and grasp hold of Adam. And I think, I think this is the true brilliance of the painting because it is the fact that there is never a time when God does not require a response from us. There's never a time when God doesn't require us to respond to Him. This is what the Christian life is all about. It's about responding to God and reaching out to God and pursuing God. And so now if we take this back to the book of Hebrews then, and you discover within the book of Hebrews that the book of Hebrews is really all about relating to God in a new and different way. It's about relating to God through relationship. And if you keep in mind then the book of Hebrews is written, written to Jewish Christians... And those Jewish Christians were struggling to comprehend this new way of relating to God. They were struggling to comprehend a way of relating to God through relationship rather than through law-keeping. And so it was a real struggle for them. It was a vastly different paradigm shift for these Jewish people. They struggled to shift from, from the sacrificial mosaic system of law where they had certain requirements that they had to fulfill to shift from that into relating to God through relationship. Jesus says that He is our friend. It's a vastly different paradigm. And, you know, as you think about it, I think today we also struggle to shift that paradigm, the paradigm between works and relationships. Because I think a lot of people are still caught up in doing things for God, in working for God, in working out their salvation. And so we, we do a lot of stuff for God rather than doing life with God, walking alongside Him as we go through life. Many are trying to, to still fulfill God's law and work out that salvation, whether it's, whether it's through church attendance or being nice to one another. But you have to ask yourself, is this really all it's, about, all it's about? Is it all about just simply attending church on Sundays and being nice to one another? Is that what God expects of us? Is that all there is or is there something more that God wants and desires from us? You see, to that Jewish mind, this was a real struggle. So much so that many of those Jewish people were giving up their relationship to Jesus, the saving salvation that they came in belief and acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus. They were giving that up, walking away from it, and going back to the sacrificial system and the law-keeping. But if you keep in mind then, the Hebrews was written to these Jewish Christians who were turning back to Judaism, then you discover that they didn't fully understand how it is that we relate to God. Because relating to God and knowing Jesus is an entirely different way of relating to God. And thus the writer of Hebrews has spent the first half of the book, more than the half of the book, building this argument. And he's been building the argument against that historical mosaic law system of which they were trying to break 
in order to come into a new and saving relationship to Jesus Christ. And so he's been building this argument, and he's been arguing against all the aspects of the law and how Jesus has changed that and how Jesus is greater than all those things. If you think back through Hebrews and think back over what we've covered so far, you remember then that Jesus, Jesus is the last and the greatest prophet, priest, and king. That Jesus is greater than the angels. That His sacrifice is greater than those of animal sacrifices. Remember that Jesus is even greater than Moses himself. That Jesus brought an end to the law. That Jesus is the great high priest and the only high priest that we will ever need in the order of Melchizedek. And that His blood ushered in a new covenant that is built on relationships rather than law keeping. And so the writer of Hebrews builds this argument and he, and he argues all those aspects as to why Jesus is greater than the law. Why Jesus is greater than all those aspects. And it is Jesus that's the, that's the center of our focus in this new re, way of relating to God. Now then in chapter 10, he begins to get very practical. So he built that argument and now it's almost as if he's saying, but what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you as you try and live in this new relationship with Jesus Christ? So the author built his argument, and he begins now to pull it all together. It really began last week in Reuben's sermon with the uh, three lettuces, an unforgettable message with those three lettuces of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. And basically the three lettuces were, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And I took the opportunity to kind of reverse that. And looked at it in the reverse. So we are to spur one another on with what? We are to spur one another on with the hope that we possess. And how are we to do that? With sincere hearts. You see, sincerity is the crucial element of this relationship that we now have with God. No longer does God want people, desire for people to relate to Him out of obligation. One would argue that God never wanted people to, to, to uh, relate to Him through obligation. But that's kind of where law leads you to. Under the, the Mosaic law-keeping sacrificial system, it really became a matter of obligation. And so you related to God out of obligation. That's what law does. Think about the laws in our society and culture. Why do we follow them? So often it's out of obligation. If we're really honest with ourselves, think about the speed limit. You know, we do the speed that is posted on the sign. We do the speed that's posted on the sign because we don't want to get a ticket. Not because we have a deep love for Helen Clark. <laughs> you know, we... We follow the law out of obligation. That's what law does. So now then, the writer of Hebrews brought in this new and living way through Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus brought us a new and a living way. No longer do we relate to God out of obligation and out of fear of judgment. Rather, we relate to God out of love and sincerity of heart. And so we move then to verse 26 of chapter 10. Now, this is kind of a, a terrifying transition that the writer of Hebrews brings in, into the uh, thinking. Verse 26 says this. After he got, 
got done talking about the relationship and how we relate to one another and how we have this hope that we profess. He says in verse 26, But if, you, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That's kind of scary. It's kind of a different, different track that the author has entered into. It was all positive, and now he's transitioned into this thought that if we deliberately keep on sinning, there's no sacrifice left for our sins. Many people struggle to understand this passage. It's a very difficult passage to understand. He's kind of opened another can of worms. And so we struggle to understand what he means by this. There's a fear deep inside of us. And many people have this fear that every sin might in some way affect their salvation. And so they live in this constant state of burden and guilt because they fear that every sin has in some way uh, affected their salvation to the point that there's no sacrifice left, that they may not be able to come to God, that in some way, accidentally, after a certain number of sins, all of a sudden, you lose your salvation. You don't know when, you don't know how. And so people have this deep-seated fear within them. Now, that's not exactly what the writer of Hebrews is, is discussing here. I won't go into the question of can we lose our salvation once we have salvation. Reuben dealt with that effectively in Hebrews 6 uh, with verses 4 through 6. That sermon is called Spiritual Refugees. If you want to refer back to that, I, I'd encourage you to listen to it. But I just wanted to quote Reuben from his sermon there. And he says this about that question, can a saved person fall away? He said, falling away happens at a fundamental level of faith. When you came to Christ, you made a conscious decision to trust God's provision of Christ's sacrifice for your sins. And you can only lose your salvation by deliberately choosing to reject that sacrifice. It's not a one-off decision. It's a deep, fundamental rejection of Christ. You have to recognize that within Scripture. There is this deep, fundamental rejection of Christ that can happen. But it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen from you making mistakes and sinning one-offs. The key word there in verse 26 is deliberate. Deliberately. Because that's, there's, it's stating that there's a big difference between accidental or sins committed out of ignorance and sins committed deliberately and continually. It's interesting in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, if you look back there, it's talking about the high priest and the earthly high priest of the Mosaic system. And it says, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And so, in effect, what he's saying is, even the high priest sinned. And so the high priest sinned, therefore he can relate to everyone else, and he can deal with them gently when they commit sins out of ignorance or when they're even going astray in some way because the high priest actually went astray himself. And I think we can all relate to the fact that we all sin. And there's no way of getting around that. None of us are perfect. We all sometimes go astray. We do the things that God, we know in our hearts that God doesn't want us to do. But the key word there is deliberately. And the Greek word for deliberate there in that passage is to sin willfully and continuously. A continuous sinning willfully. As opposed to sins committed out of ignorance or out of just simply being weak 
and giving in to the temptation. And so deliberate, willful, defiant sin. It's not a one-off sin, but it's a continual pattern of sin that is in defiance of God. In defiance of God. Knowing what God wants and saying to God, in effect, because you're continuing to sin, you say, in effect, God, I don't care about you and your standards. It's, it's defiant sin is what he's talking about. Now, the idea of falling away and that believers can fall away, this was a big concern for the writer of Hebrews. He mentions it five times in the book of Hebrews. I want to take you, just highlight those, take you through that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So that we do not drift away. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, See to it, brothers, that none of us, or none of you, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. His brothers, he was saying, See to it that you don't turn away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And then chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, Reuben dealt with this. says, uh, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. I won't go into depth there, but again, you get the feeling that this idea of falling away was a huge concern to the writer of Hebrews. And then you get over to, to uh, chapter 10, verse 26, where it's stated in a different way, but it's saying the same thing. If you deliberately keep on sinning after you've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. See, the author is saying, if you choose to go down this path, then there will be no other sacrifice for you. It's important to understand that it's not saying that a defiant person can't come back to Christ. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. But to reject the sacrifice of Jesus means you're left with no, no other options. That's what he's saying. The sacrifice of Jesus was a once-for-all sacrifice. There's no longer remains any other sacrifice for your sins. Now it, now it really begins to relate to the people that the writer of Hebrews wrote this book to to those Jewish Christians who were beginning to turn away from Christ and give up that sacrifice of Christ and to go back then into the sacrificial, sac, uh, sacrificial mosaic law where they were beginning to sacrifice animals again. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you continually sin and you, and you reject the sacrifice of Christ, those animal sacrifices are going to do you no good. There's no other sacrifice that is left. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ brings about your forgiveness. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 and following. He, the writer was talking about the high priest entering into the most holy place every year to give that blood of the animals. We've gone through that so often in the book of Hebrews. And now he's saying, if that were the case, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ 
was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You see, nothing else will bring forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness only comes through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so if you choose, and it is a choice, it's a choice that you can make, if you choose to outright reject this offer of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then the writer of Hebrews says there's only one thing that awaits you. And that's where you move into verse 27. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The fearful expectation of judgment. Chapter 12, verse 29, states that God is a consuming fire. You see, you can never lose sight of this reality. That God is consuming fire and a holy and just God. If you look further, verse 28, he goes on to explain what happened to those who rejected the law of Moses. He says, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God? Underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so you get kind of this dreadful thought in your mind. If you willingly and openly reject the sacrifice of Christ, then all you have waiting for you is a fearful expectation of judgment. You get, you get this, this image of God. Before this passage, you got an image of God that is loving and holy. And that's the one side of God's nature. Loving, holy, full of grace, full of love, wanting to relate to each one of us personally. Jesus said if you accept His sacrifice, He will be your friend. God wants to reach down to us because He loves us and He cares about every one of us. He doesn't want to see any one of us not be in heaven and have eternal life with Him. But then you have the other aspect of God's nature. That God is holy and just and can have nothing to do with sin. And that He will bring judgment down upon us. He will judge all of mankind. And He is a consuming fire. And so God is loving, but God is also holy. And so basically we have two choices. There's two paths that we can take. The one path leads to punishment. And so he will punish those who reject him. Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment. But then there's another path that you can take. Another way of life. And that is to accept Him. And if you accept Him, then there will be a reward waiting for you. God will reward you for accepting Him. You get that in verse 35. It says, your confidence will be richly rewarded. Hebrews 11:6 6 says that about those who believe, 
if you believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him? Punishment or reward? But you see, God is not an arbitrary God. He's not sitting up there making arbitrary judgment decisions, random decisions. He's not saying, you're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. That's not how God's making His judgments upon us. It's actually us who are making that. Who are making the conscious choice and decision as to whether or not we're in or out. Whether we accept Him or we don't. Accept Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, you're in. Reject Jesus Christ, punishment. Those are the choices. We must never forget this in life. You see, life is all about our pursuit of God. What God desires most from us is for us to pursue Him. He desires our pursuit of Him, not our perfection. He knows you're never going to be perfect. He knows that you're always going to sin occasionally. Always going to sin occasionally. I think that does make sense. You know, God, God knows that we will never be perfect. But He desires us to pursue Him, to long for Him. He desires for us to just simply reach out our finger and touch His finger and make that connection with Him. His desire is for us to live with Him eternally. And eternal life is to know God. So falling into the hands of the living God might be a terrifying and dreadful thing. But if you believe and accept Him, it might also be a wonderful thing to come into the hands of God. So I think Michelangelo got it right in his interpretation, in his depiction of God. God is reaching down for us, but He's left a very small gap. It's not an insurmountable gap. It's not something that we cannot overcome. But God is asking us to respond to Him, to make a heartfelt, genuine, sincere attempt to connect with Him, to pursue Him. And so the writer of Hebrews then concludes his message here in this chapter with a reminder to those who had, who had once accepted Jesus Christ. He says in verse 32, Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, because you knew that yourself that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now, how many of us can actually say that? That we could stand by, especially here on the shore, let's admit it, here in Albany, how many of us could honestly say that we joyfully would accept the confiscation of our properties because we knew that we had a more lasting and better possession in Jesus Christ? Can you honestly say that? Can you honestly say that what you have in Jesus Christ is more important than anything that this world can offer you? That's what he's saying there. He said, remember those early days when you had that faith, when you genuinely accepted Jesus Christ, so much so that you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your properties. 
because you knew your possessions were in heaven. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. He says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. He says you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. What I see there is he's saying continue to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ all your life. Do not reject it. We don't have to have this fear that we're going to fall away from God accidentally. We will not fall away from God accidentally. But we can openly reject Him. And if you get so caught up in sin that you're continually sinning and neglecting God, and you're sinning to the point that you say to yourself, I no longer want anything to do with God, that then separates you from Him. But you can come back in and accept again that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful text. This is powerful what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Listen to how he concludes it. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. That's powerful, folks. That's who we are. We're not, we're not scared little Christians walking around in the world fearful of everything that's going to happen to us. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who believe, believe in the salvation that Jesus Christ has offered to us. We are, those, we are of those who believe and are saved and will one day know God like no other and live with Him eternally. That to me, folks, is a powerful statement. We are not of those who will back away from the salvation and go back to the old way of living. We believe and are saved through Jesus Christ. My question for you this morning is, do we really understand what we possess in Jesus Christ, in knowing Him? The writer of Hebrews goes on next week, Reuben, to deal with this in chapter 11. And he really begins to build in the inspirational faith that all those people had throughout Scripture. And he begins to say, this is the kind of faith that you need. This is the way you walk with Christ. This is the way that you have a relationship with Him. You walk by faith, not by sight. Just before I close this morning, I just want to have a time of prayer. But before I do that, let me just say a little bit for you that uh, maybe, maybe you don't know Christ. But you know what's on offer here this morning and every morning when you come to know God is a salvation and a hope that you can have and nothing else. This world will not give you the hope that you can have in Jesus Christ. This world cannot offer you anything that's going to last forever. 
no matter how far you get in this life, you cannot take it with you. There's only one thing you will take with you in this life, and that is the hope that you have in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so I offer the invitation to you this morning to come to know Him as Lord and Savior. You may ask, well, what do I have to do to do that? Just simply tell God you accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and begin walking anew and afresh with Him today. Would you stand with me? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we gather in your name where we can come and worship you, where we can build one another up with the hope that we profess. Lord, I pray that everyone here will have a sincere heart when they approach you. I pray that there won't be any, uh, any fakers here this morning, Lord. I pray that there will be genuineness, a genuine calling out to you, Lord. I pray for your salvation to be amongst us. I pray for those who are timid and afraid that they will have a boldness in their faith to live for you. Father, be with us as we go out this week. Keep us from shrinking back. Help us to hold on to the hope that we have in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>